Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the Healthcare Systems, Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Dr Stephen Soames from the University of Warwick. His paper was entitled Transformation or Stultification, The First 15 Years of Voluntary Mental Treatment in London, 1930-1945, and Dublin, 1945-1960. Dr Soames was unable to attend the workshop in person, and his paper is read here by Dr. Fiocher Byrne. Just to say, if there are any first-person pronouns in this, obviously they refer to Stephen. (laughs) Um, So it's not a case of personation or anything like that. So, um, in the first 50 years of the 20th century, each of the countries within the British Isles legislated in favour of voluntary mental treatment. England and Wales introduced a Mental Treatment Act in 1930, followed by Northern Ireland in 1932. The Republic of Ireland instituted its own Mental Treatment Act in 1945, and each paved the way for patients and their families to determine the timing and duration of psychiatric treatment, whether in mental hospitals or, as increasingly became the case, in a wider community setting. It is understandable that historians have largely chosen to interpret the significance of these acts at the level of the state, given their passage through the respective national legislatures. Verdicts on the legacy of these laws have ranged from the sanguine to the scathing, as reflected in the quotes shown here. What unifies these quotes is that all regard the legal introduction of voluntary mental treatment from the perspective of the national. Neil McRae has suggested England and Wales's act did little to move psychiatry beyond the stultifying asylum environment, a conclusion Tom Feeney has echoed in the Irish case. However, Brennan Kelly has proposed that the introduction of voluntary treatment in Ireland had a more transformative impact on attitudes, with less stigma henceforth attached to mental treatment. Kathleen Jones has made a similar point in her view that voluntary treatment for Britain prompted a broad shift in emphasis from a legalistic to a medical basis for institutional psychiatry. Viewed telescopically, to take in their effects at a national level, we are left with the impression that these acts altered attitudes more than they affected the apparatus of caregiving. Useful though though these broad sweep national studies are, they also serve to mask the diversity of responses to voluntary treatment legislation. Closer attention to regional contexts serves to magnify these differences. While the mental treatment acts discussed in this paper instituted a universal principle of voluntary treatment, much in their detail remained permissive. Anne Rogers and David Pilgrim, in particular, have raised the discretionary leeway afforded to local authorities in the UK, which could decide upon the timing, form, and extent of any services designed to cater for this new class of voluntary patients. If voluntary treatment became a a national requirement, its implementation rested on decisions taken at a more regional level. The question emerges then, how far did different regions diverge in the response to mental treatment legislation? This paper will explore how local institutions and councils varied in their approach to perhaps the cornerstone of the new regime, the outpatient clinic. After both the 1930 and 1945 Acts, central government departments pressed local authorities to make suitable arrangements for outpatient services. The Board of Control, England and Wales's Department for Mental Health, issued guidance on the steps local authorities should take. 
In September 1930, The Lancet reported that the board particularly wanted locally determined arrangements for outpatient clinics and follow-up care. The board made it clear that it sought local authorities to use clinics to attract the new class of voluntary patients created by the Mental Treatment Act. It believed that the relative informality of the outpatient environment would make voluntary patients more likely to submit to treatment at an early curable stage. Ireland's Mental Treatment Act of 1945 appears to have followed the same principle. Section 24 enabled the creation of psychiatric outpatient clinics either within mental hospitals or in the wider community. What this paper examines is how far councils and mental hospitals opted to act upon these provisions that at a national level normalized the practice of outpatient care. It is worthwhile at this stage to specify the approach taken to region in this paper as primarily administrative rather than geographical and centered on councils and institutions rather than on places and communities. When thinking about Martin Powell's exhortation for more focus on regional context and contiguity, we might want to define where we are drawing these borders and setting these contexts. In this case, looking at the local development of policy, it is necessary to focus upon the primary units of administration for metropolitan mental health. For London, this was a highly centralized and self-consciously progressive county council. In contrast, Dublin's mental hospital superintendents had greater autonomy, as until 1960, mental health services devolved to a large extent upon individual institutions. It will be argued that the decisions taken at this local level for outpatient care reflected the local regulatory and institutional context of these cities. In particular, I will suggest that the legacy, I being Stephen, uh, that the legacy of existing services, prevailing economic conditions, and political planning all potentially played a part in the divergence of experience between these metropolitan settings as between other regions. As the theme of this conference attests, the regional variability of healthcare has become a key concern for medical historians. A number of case studies over the past decade have looked beyond national aggregates and into the finer-grained cultural, social, and economic contexts that informed local healthcare provision. One that is particularly pertinent to the present paper is Pamela Michael's 2003 study of Denby Asylum. In this book, Michael suggests that whilst North Wales shared English mental health laws, ministries, and inspectorates, in other respects, Denby diverged significantly from its neighbors. Differences in language, custom, and culture, Michael has proposed, led to marked regional variations in the organization of psychiatric services. One such local peculiarity, particularly relevant in the present paper, to the present paper, is the relatively slow emergence of psychiatric outpatient clinics in this part of Wales. Contrast this with Cardiff and South Wales, which the Journal of Mental Science suggests became an early center for psychiatric outpatient care in Britain. The clinic Edwin Goodall developed at Cardiff Royal Infirmary during the 1920s anticipated precisely the sort of general hospital-based treatment framed in the 1930 Mental Treatment Act. Why should one region have seemingly embraced outpatient treatment while another largely ignored it? This paper will suggest that the, that the permissiveness at the heart of early 20th century mental treatment acts fostered a, a diversity of local responses 
as local authorities reacted at different speeds and in different ways to their provisions. The mental treatment acts that provided for voluntary treatment in the eyes of their architects and central government also incentivized the creation of outpatient and aftercare services. It is a contention of this paper that the legacy of pre-existing institutional infrastructures proved most important to the extensiveness and completeness of the services that resulted. Equally, however, the timing of these acts helped, to helped frame the economic achievability of new outpatient and aftercare services. Less clear to Stephen, though maybe to some of you, is the influence that political outlook and planning may have had. What I, being Stephen, will claim is that the specific metropolitan context of London, of London proved particularly conducive to the rapid realization of an integrated system of care. In this respect, it affirms John Stewart's view that the London County Council held distinctive economic and organizational advantages over many other English regions in the development of support services intended particularly for voluntary patients. As a corollary of this, uh, this paper will also more tentatively question whether the comparative autonomy of Dublin's mental health institutions impeded a similar coordination of outpatient care between general and mental hospitals, but may have also encouraged local experimentation. The central government department responsible for mental health, the Board of Control, made it plain to local authorities that it wanted to see more outpatient and aftercare to meet the provisions of the 1930 Mental Treatment Act. It clearly associated voluntary treatment with these forms of community-based support. In March 1931, the board anticipated that in the wake of the act, to quote, many authorities will look to the board for advice as to the organization of social services in connection with the outpatient clinics and aftercare. In writing these words to the LCC, however, the board was conversing with the converted. The council already ran an outpatient clinic through the Maudsley Hospital. Opened in 1923, the Maudsley became the only public mental hospital in Britain to treat voluntary patients prior to the 1930 Mental Treatment Act. Consequently, London already, ha already had a working model for linking outpatient facilities with voluntary mental hospital inpatient treatment, which gave it a head start on many other authorities. It took less than six months for the LCC to improvise and execute its plans for outpatient clinics. A Mental Treatment Act subcommittee was first convened on the 12th of December 1930. This then approved proposals for a coordinated network of clinics on the 12th of February, which thereafter opened during May 1931. Compare this with other UK local authorities, which which, where in many cases outpatient clinics opened only after a gap of several years. Between 1933 and 35, the number of outpatient clinics in England and Wales practically doubled, from 85 to 162. This rapid increase supports the board's earlier view in 1931 that local authorities had made good progress in the creation of outpatient clinics, which would meet the terms of the 1930 Act. Nevertheless, the continued rise into the mid-1930s further suggests that many authorities were notably slower than the LCC in making such arrangements. After all, by 1935, the LCC's system of clinics had already been in operation for four years. By 1937, the Board of Control recorded, perhaps pointedly, that the development of outpatient clinics was practically stationary. 
a choice of words that perhaps suggests the board still felt there was more scope for development. Even then, a closer reading of these reports suggests that not all clinics met the approval of the board's mental hospital inspectorate. For example, in 1935, it had pressured Roseby Mental Hospital in Lincolnshire to hasten work on its planned outpatient clinic. Once built in 1937, inspectors once again adopted a critical tone. They observed that Roseby's clinic was not well attended and as a possible solution proposed forging links with three existing general clinics that were, quote, that were located in to, quote, more convenient centres in the area. These comments reflect upon Roseby's particular local response to the provisions of the 1930 Act. Rather than establish clinics and general hospitals, as London did, Roseby and Lincolnshire had chosen to run the clinic from within the mental hospital itself. This identified voluntary outpatients more closely with the traditional locus of treatment for certified inpatients. Equally, it kept psychiatric outpatient treatment physically separate from the general hospital. Not only were the London County Council's clinics more rapidly established, they were also much more closely integrated into a network of institutions. The LCC's existing provision for voluntary and outpatient services at the Maudsley Hospital made it an obvious hub for the further development of these services after 1930. Moreover, as John Stewart has explored, the authority had already begun to take active steps to improve coordination across its hospital services. The placement of psychiatric outpatient clinics within general hospitals, therefore, represented a further step on a road already taken. From May 1931, the LCC ran clinics within general hospitals in the east, west, and north of the city, as well as from the existing Maudsley Hospital. Superintendents from each of the London mental hospitals then attended these clinics on a rotor system, supported by social workers. This is not to say that London attained a seamless coordination of services. Following Stewart's analysis, voluntary hospitals do appear to have been less readily assimilated into the council scheme with a provisional agreement to use a ward in King's College Hospital, seemingly the sum total of progress by spring 1932. Even so, the speed and extensiveness of London's implementation of outpatient care for voluntary patients is noticeable, especially when compared with the limited steps taken in this direction in areas such as Danby and Lincolnshire. The less integrated approach taken at hospitals such, hospitals such as Roseby, of course, may well have better reflected local circumstances. Local geography, budgets, and patterns of staffing are amongst the factors which may, in this case, have favored a solution to outpatient care centered locally on this one institution. Nevertheless, the Board of Control that oversaw the implementation of the 1930 Act certainly believed that outpatient clinics located in general hospitals were better placed to catch early voluntary cases before they needed hospitalization. Whilst London particularly exemplifies its approach, other authorities also attracted the board's praise. Like Cardiff, Oxford had previously in the 1920s operated a psychiatric outpatient clinic within a local infirmary. As with London, this perhaps gave these areas a head start in meeting the board's expectations. In 1934, for example, the board's inspectors accredited a fall in the number of mental hospital admissions in Oxford to the early treatment practiced within these infirmary-based clinics. Whilst this conclusion is open to question, areas like London and Oxford that had established outpatient services prior to 1930 
do at least appear to have been successful in winning the board's praise after 1930. Moreover, this praise reflected an assumption that clinics and general hospitals would be better placed to identify voluntary cases for early mental treatment. <coughs> the remainder of this paper will now turn to consider how Dublin responded to the equivalent Mental Treatment Act of 1945. Although obviously selective, these comparative timelines suggest the difference between Dublin and London's uptake of outpatient care. Most noticeable, is, most noticeable is the much slower pace of development for psychiatric clinics in Ireland. Tom Feeney has recently observed that across Ireland, outpatient services hardly existed until the 1950s, until the late 1950s. This is more than a decade after the Section 24 of the Mental Treatment Act had legislated for psychiatric clinics both inside and outside mental hospitals. The tone of the Irish Ministry of Health's correspondence with Dublin's mental hospitals reflects a sense of frustration at the perceived lack of progress in outpatient and aftercare. In a letter to St. Patrick's Mental Hospital from 1958, the ministry claimed it had been constantly pressing authorities to increase both the number of clinics and the range of services they provided. It asked particularly, particularly for news on the progress of St. Patrick's outpatient services, which it evidently felt required more attention. In a separate memorandum from the same year, the ministry reported, reported its suspicion that at Grange Gorman and Portran, there had to be, and I quote, uh, a grave need for more preventive and aftercare services. To solve this need, as with the English and Wealth Board of Control, the Irish Ministry of Health recommended the establishment of further outpatient clinics. <laughs> and uh, Steve has included, but I'll just interject here to give you an idea of the numbers of, of outpatient clinics that had opened by 1957 in Ireland. There were then about 83 clinics uh, with attendances of 8,700 or so, uh, which totaled about 3,491 individual patients. Uh, almost 700 of these were, had been discharged patients, and they were so it was regarded as a form of aftercare. Uh, so let's just give you an idea of what I developed since the enactment of the, in 1947 of the Mental Treatment Act in Ireland. Uh, that's obviously at a national level. Outpatient care and aftercare did develop in Dublin. As the largest of Dublin's mental hospitals, Grange Gorman opened an outpatient clinic at Bray from 1952. Surveys suggest that between 1957 and 59, the hospital managed a few thousand outpatient attendances each year. The majority were held within the mental hospital itself. Nevertheless, Grange Gorman also established other clinics held elsewhere in Dublin at the Mercer's Hospital and Crumlin Health Centre. So too, from 1940 and perhaps earlier, Grange Gorman had a voluntary ladies' mental aftercare committee to visit patients discharged from the hospital. Together, these represented a symbolic, if relatively small-scale, extension of caregiving into the community. To some extent, we can identify similarities both across regions and between countries before 1960. Central government pressure for reform, a symbolic shift to outpatient services, and increased connectivity between mental and general hospitals. Nevertheless, there are also marked contrasts between the case of London and Dublin. While the London County Council established a planned and coordinated network of outpatient clinics inside six months, Dublin's mental hospitals individually improvised outpatient care over several, over several years. The political will and economic feasibility for reform appears greater in 1930s London than in 1950s Dublin. 
John Stewart has indicated that London was relatively less affected by the Great Depression than many English regions. At the same time, it developed plans for a uniquely coordinated system of hospital care. Together, this ensured London was especially willing and able to implement a comprehensive system of outpatient care. In contrast, Dublin's outpatient services remained highly localised and, and in the eyes of Ireland's Ministry of Health, underdeveloped. Dublin's corporation presented one obstacle. Despite pressure from the Ministry of Health, in 1959 the corporation refused to allocate the funding required to establish further clinics. It based its decision on budgetary constraints, which potentially suggests the importance of local financial context to the development of facilities for voluntary treatment. Equally, the triangulation of correspondence between the Ministry, the corporation, and Dublin's individual mental hospitals suggests we should inquire in greater depth than is possible in this paper into the significance of regional interorganizational relations. Why then did London and Dublin diverge so significantly in their implementation of outpatient care after their respective mental treatment acts? This paper has suggested that the London County Council possessed the political determination, financial capability, administrative integration, and practice-based experience to rapidly implement a coordinated general hospital-based scheme for outpatient care. While I've not yet had a chance to explore in comparable depth, I being Stephen as usual, uh, the Irish context, it would at least appear that these incentives for reform were less apparent in Dublin. London had already effectively trialled voluntary outpatient care since 1923 at the Maudsley Hospital. Other areas that had previously established outpatient clinics within general hospitals, like Oxford, also appeared to have more rapidly met the expectations of central government for the community care of voluntary patients. Areas that had not already experimented with outpatient care, like Castephen in England, Dublin in Ireland, and Denby in North Wales, perhaps, unsurprisingly, proved slower in implementing it. Less certain is the role that regional economies, cultures, and politics played in the realization of outpatient care. This paper raises these as areas for discussion more than it provides any answers. Even so, there do appear to be correlations between London's relative sol solvency during the, during the 1930s and its ability to effect reforms. In contrast, Dublin Corporation into the late 1950s pleaded poverty, and this to some extent at least acted as a break upon the development of further clinics. In some respects, Dublin corresponds more closely with Castephen in Lincolnshire than it does to its sister capital city, London. As in Castephen, it was Dublin's individual mental hospitals that led developments in outpatient care. As in Castephen, these developments occurred more slowly and with apparently less integration between mental hospitals and general hospitals. What is needed to explore these parallels further are more detailed case studies, like Pamela Michaels which might reveal how far such parallels were due to shared contexts and circumstances. Whereas the London County Council centrally approved funding at relatively short notice, in Dublin this did not transpire. This paper has suggested this was substantially due to an inherited legacy of past services and systems of organisation, present budgetary concerns and political planning that looked to the future. Above all, the case studies explored in this paper suggests the importance of regarding even national pieces of legislation through the prism of the regional. Only then will their effects become truly apparent. <laughs>